Welcome to this Brewery Pro podcast. This is part of Hot Products Australia's 2021 Virtual Harvest Program. Today you'll hear from Simon Whittock, who has been in charge of HPA's breeding program since 2007. He shares his thoughts on how hop growers and brewers can work to maximise fruity flavours and aromas in beer by better understanding several key classes of hop compounds and how they behave through the brewing process. Stay tuned for a special Q&A with Tim Matthews, Vice President of Global Brewing at Kanaki. He is focused on improving everything from product innovation to sourcing ingredients and improving the connection between brewers and growers. If you'd like to skip straight to the Q&A, check the show notes for time codes. So the slides that I've put together today represent some of my thinking around how um, compounds in hops translate to fruity flavours in beer. So there are a number of compounds produced by hops that result in different flavour traits in beer. There are several classes of compounds that create fruity flavours. Some are transferred directly to beer, while others are non-flavour active precursors in hops that are modified by biotransformational processes in brewing that result in flavour active compounds in beer. So the, the key one that everyone knows about, the alpha acids such as humulone that are isomerized to provide bitterness, but there are also polyphenols that influence mouthfeel. Uh, the sesquiterpenes uh, have been shown to produce uh, spicy resinous characters. You have monoterpenes such as Myrcene, you have monoterpene alcohols such as linalool and geraniol and the compounds that have become very well studied in the last few years are the, the sulfur containing thiols. I think it's interesting in the research that I've put into understanding the biosynthesis of these compounds that the different groups of compounds that contribute different flavours to hops. Those compounds originate in different biosynthetic pathways and they can even be isolated to different subcellular localities you know, within a cell of a plant. So some, some compounds are produced in chloroplasts while others are produced in the cytosol of the cell. What we need to zero in on for the fruity flavours in beer though are primarily the monoterpene alcohols such as linalool and geraniol and the polyfunctional thiols. Linalool and geraniol, nerol, uh, they're generally found as either free compounds in hops or they're glycosidically bound precursors or geraniol esters that are then biotransformed by yeast. The monoterpene alcohols have a specific role in citrus characters such as lemon and lime. Uh, the polyfunctional thiols uh, kind of they're defined by having three carbons between the S and the R group. Uh, when you have a short chain of carbons in the, in the backbone of the compound, three to four carbons tend to produce savoury characters, um, the, the, the hop-derived onion and garlic that everyone's familiar with, whereas if the carbon chain gets a little bit longer, say five to eight carbons, we tend to see uh, floral, citrus, fruit characters and potentially savoury depending on the particular compound. Hop-derived thiols have become uh, compounds of interest to brewers in recent years with uh, dry hopping particularly taking the fall with flavour forward beers. Uh, hops are a source of both free and bound thiol precursors uh, and in, in brewing, in dry hopping, brewers are relying on yeast activity particularly to free thiols, fruit 
dominant flavour thiols from bound precursors, uh, particularly um, relying on cystathione beta lyase activity in the yeast to release the, the fruit flavour causing thiols. It's interesting when you look at the um, biology of thiol accumulation in plants. I uh, haven't seen a lot of work on this in hop, but the model from grapevines suggests that uh, in normal healthy growth, the amino acid accumulation from sulfide to cysteine is uh, thrown to protein biosynthesis. But when a plant is stressed, a different pathway kicks in and cysteine is converted to glutathione uh, and conjugates of, glutath of glutathione and cysteine are what result in the precursors for the fruit flavour causing thiols once those precursors are exposed to yeast activity in beer. From our own work and researching the literature, it appears that there's a fairly clear sequence of accumulation of flavour active metabolites as a hop crop matures. We first see maximal accumulation of prenyl flavonoids then beta acids, then alpha acids, sesquiterpenes, and monoterpenes in a time series as the hop crop matures. Originally, I wrote this so that the free thiols were probably the last to accumulate. There was some evidence from some researchers in Japan that suggested that was so, but I've since seen some later research that suggests that the accumulation of thiols and their precursors may not be as time dependent as the banner at the bottom of this slide suggests. At HPA, what we actually measure in the run-up to pre-harvest are um, comb weights, alpha acids, beta acids, essential oils, and the actual dry matter of the hop cones. We, we measure how much moisture there are in the hop cones as they mature. We typically start in, in mid-February, and we'll continue monitoring fields right through to the end of harvest. And when you plot those up on a, on a time series, you, you can see the metabolites, the, the Alpha acids, beta acids accumulate earlier than do the oil content. And the key one for a, for a hop grower, and it's indirectly important for brewers, is the cone weight. The cone weight peaks earlier than does the essential oil, and that peak of cone weight basically translates to the maximum yield that we can obtain from that variety in that season. As a hop grower, we're juggling, we're, we're making a judgment call as to what the best bet between maximum uh, metabolite accumulation and maximum yield is to, to be able to supply brewers with the most flavour potential of the and of the highest quality. The hop variety that everyone seems to want to know about uh, these days for me is Eclipse, the uh, maturity and metabolite accumulation of Eclipse. So we see the maximum oil accumulation for Eclipse occur in late March. Uh, it's got an oil profile that's very similar to Galaxy in that it is dominated by monoterpenes, so myrcene particularly. Um, there are very, very low levels of sesquiterpenes in there. There's no humulene or very little humulene and very little caryophylline. Flavour active compounds from the literature that are known to create a sweet mandarin flavour are linalool, pinene, limonene, they're all monoterpenes. And we've got decadienal and octanal as well. In, in the list. So it's likely that compounds like that occur in hops from the variety Eclipse and produce the mandarin flavour in beer that we see. Through the development phase of this variety, we've observed that sweet mandarin, sweet orange flavour 
in both kettle hopped and dry hopped beers, suggesting that biotransformation may not necessarily be essential to get that character from Eclipse hops, but it's undeniable that biotransformation may play a role in maximising the intensity of flavour observed in some dry hop beers using Eclipse. Thanks for listening. Stay with us for a live Q&A and I'm looking forward to answering your questions. G'day. Thanks for tuning in and hearing a few thoughts on how to maximise hop flavour in beer. I'm Alan Johnston, Head of Sales and Marketing here at HPA and joining me today is Dr. Simon Whittick and a very special guest, Tim Matthews. Great to be here. Thanks, Audrey. Tim is a 13-year veteran with Oscar Blues, uh, but now he holds the lofty title of Vice President of Global Brewing at Canarchy, where his focus is on improving everything from product innovation, uh, raw material sourcing, and improving the connection between brewers and growers. So, Tim, again, welcome, and thanks very much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure, OJJ. Thanks for having me. Simon uh, is head of our agronomic services uh, and leads up our breeding program. Uh, well qualified uh, for the role before taking it uh, as he holds a PhD in quantitative genetics. Originally in uh, eucalypts? Tree breeding. Yeah. Tree breeding, yeah, mm -hmm. there you go. So uh, here in Tasmania, we don't just grow hops, we also grow a lot of trees. Now, uh, having led our program for, uh, whew, 13 years. 13 years. <laughs> Everyone's here for 13 years. That's great. Uh, and Simon is well qualified to uh, call himself an expert on uh, hop breeding and hop uh, biochemistry and uh, the, the juicy topics we're going to talk about today. Thanks for making yourself available in the middle of harvest. Thanks, OJ. So today uh, we're talking about hop compounds and how they behave in the brewing process. Uh, and this is an emerging field of study. This is uh, constantly evolving. And it's obviously an area that we try and uh, keep abreast of for our own purposes uh, on farm. Uh, but we also attempt to feed what we know into brewers uh, to the benefit of our customers and their beers. So Simon, you're pretty passionate about this topic. How do you go about keeping up with the state of the science? I think it's it's relatively simple. It's putting time into following the literature, um, pay your memberships with the ASBC, look at the journals, look at the NBAA journals, uh, go to conferences. Um, it, it, you know, if you're really, really keen and you really want to learn, get involved in a research project and, and work on some published research. You learn a heap doing that process. We still have, um, you know, from our perspective, we still have uh, research linkages out there with the university? Uh, we're not actively funded at the moment, but we still have, you know, manuscripts in, pre in preparation and things like that. Great. Yeah. So the, the last phase of our linkages with um, with universities and research institutes is, is still coming to a conclusion. Yeah, and we've got other projects in preparation as well. They're not actually not funded yet. Yeah, yeah exciting. And we'll, we'll be sure to bring those, um, you know, into our communications with brewers when, uh, <laughs> when, we're, when Simon's ready. <laughs> <laughs> when we get them done. So the presentation we watched just now um, is basically a demonstration of what we understand is going on in, in, in the hop plants, uh, what we think we know about how 
uh, we can maximise the flavour potential of our hops. Tell me how some of this influences our decisions on farm. So we have, I guess it, it feeds back at multiple levels. So the, the first level that I face, um, we, we do use some of these inferences to look at the plants in our breeding program and make decisions around uh, which ones to select or bring forward. Uh, I think, you know, the, the primary tool we have here uh, is GCMS data from the hop oil, which is, it's imperfect, but I think there are clues there um, based on the information that has been developed over the last 10 years or so. You can use that as a guide. Uh, it doesn't get you the one, mm. but it gives you a better chance of finding something that's interesting. So it, it has better resolution than just compound categories. Yeah but it isn't the silver bullet to tell you. Yeah, you back that in with um, sort of very early stage uh, nanoscale trial brewing. And mm -hmm. I think you can, you can um, we can make some very good decisions quite early in the program. So that's yep. exciting. The other one is obviously around uh, quality. Mm. Yeah, so if we know at what stage to pick the plant or how to set the crop up to target the metabolite profile that we know produces the best outcomes in beer, then obviously that helps us to manage the estate and get the product to the brewers. Mm -hmm. Does that impact across uh, multiple sites and soil types? And it impacts across multiple sites because mm -hmm. what we're trying to do is produce a similar outcome from mm -hmm. multiple sites. Mm -hmm. uh, the science to establish the impact of soil type, for example, is extraordinarily difficult. Um, and I think there's other other things we need to learn before we go down that path. Mm -hmm. So we so we stay focused on the things that we can control, for instance, and, and observe. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, Tim, over to you, my friend. Um, just for the benefit of the audience, can you give us a little insight into Kanaki? Sure thing. It's, uh, it is definitely complex yet simple in some ways. So... Nonetheless, we've, uh, we've collectivized uh, seven different breweries uh, across the country in craft beer. And there are times when we have been able to consolidate and there are some times where we've been able to uh, stay proliferated. Uh, in the world of hops, we, that's a perfect example of the variety uh, in the approach that we've taken. We tried to be collect, consolidated and simple, like focused when working with our vendors but utilizing the multitude of brewers and different minds and approaches and theories that we all have in terms of evaluating uh, the technical space and um, also how we're interacting and gaining intimacy with different hop varieties. And how many, uh, how many brewers or how many breweries in the group currently? We have uh, three weavers in California, Wasatch and Squatters in Utah, uh, Oscar Blues in Colorado, Austin, and Brevard, North Carolina. We have Deep Ellum in Dallas, Texas, Perrin in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Cigar City in Tampa, Florida. Wow. So a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have uh, a whole bunch of different brewing minds within those different places too. So let's just say plenty of a personality. So it's been fun. Yeah, but of course, if you can if you can harness that diversity, what a powerful yep. tool! And and uh, we'll we'll sort of touch on that again down the track. Let's um let's uh, just just take a step back to Simon's um, comments a minute ago, where we understand our understanding of the plant um, biology influences our growing on farm. If we can come through with the plan as as Simon's describing it, 
It's then over to the brewer to incorporate this knowledge into practical application. Uh, you know, we're all familiar with where hops are added, whether it's hot side, uh, you know, before flame out, flame out, or, uh, or in even more complex challenges uh, in the dry hop setting uh, where, where biotransformation just uh, starts to confuse uh, the whole process. Can you kick off for me with some comments around um, fermentation and dry hopping um, as it relates to how you see maximizing flavor? Definitely. It has been uh, the key point, trying to look at it, look at the hops in a different way uh, than we ever have before, challenging what we think we know about what uh, leads to the final product of hop flavor and beer. Uh, we look at all the different biotransformations. So we're releasing glycosidically bound terpenes or even the mani manipulation of terpenes from one to, to another. We look at yeast stress. You know, it's not all about the positives. It can be about the negatives. And uh, sometimes we do stress yeast to create positives, but we have found at times that yeast stress can lead to a whole bunch of the negatives too. And understanding the dry hop creep, interesting as we've dug into that, we've noticed that other compounds other than the, uh, the oils uh, and such you know, are contributing to the, the dry hop creep itself, that secondary fermentation. For example, we do see uh, a pickup in sugars and density after we, uh, we dry hop. And actually, I can only say density because it could have been other things too, but it's affecting the measurement of apparent extract and real extract in our beer. Nonetheless, we've found out that you know, yeast stress has been in our, especially in our working with uh, hops from the Southern Hemisphere and any other hops that have high amounts of sulfur compounds, so thiols uh, especially, the, uh, the yeast can definitely work with those thiols and manipulate them into something great, tropical and such. But we've, we've had some scenarios where it has turned it into, uh, you know, mercaptan type of compounds. And especially when we uh, over nutrify, we've found that we don't need as much uh, nutrients in our um, beers that get dry hopped with the, uh, well, especially with the, the dry hop loads that we have today. And also over pitching, we, we'd like to under pitch. Uh, we also know that uh, autolysis can lead to a lot of different bad flavors in dry hop beers. Uh, we've had beers, uh, we did a, a, a trial with Eclipse like four or five years ago, and it was just going great. And it was super citrusy, mandarin and all that. And then uh, we, we let it on the yeast for this one, one or two day extra period that probably didn't need to happen. And then it just flipped around like that. But that, that experience led us to uh, understanding um, the stress effect that downstream and now we utilize that knowledge in a whole bunch of different beers it's an interesting commentary though isn't it because of course like if you flip that around to generation of yeast esters in in certain specific beer styles yeast stress does play an important role so you talk about negative outcomes but but you have to actually investigate those to find out and that's that's the important part we now know or you're saying that you, you guys now know that uh, over nutrification or or over or under pitching and obviously poor yeast health in general might affect your consistency of your dry hop outcomes. And, you know, certainly in the early part of my career, dry hopping was 
effectively this this black box process because some of this investigation hadn't been done so we're all wondering why our dry hop outcomes are always different so it's really for me it's really satisfying to hear um hear your insights there in in the role of yeast health as well as the obvious things about timing and ph control and and these sorts of things but yeast health playing a big role in hop derived flavor outcomes really really uh, really insightful thank you so you've touched there on um, on a few things. How does how does hop trialing in your I lost count. You must have got to seven or eight breweries there describing Kanaki. How does hop trialing with new varieties look inside the co-op? And um, and how do you share the learnings in between the group? Well, the the interaction with any hop that we eventually trial starts at ground level. We collectivize our getting boots on the ground. We travel to different farms. Not, not, not one person, not two, not two people can travel to all the different farms we'd like to visit. And, and especially you can travel there, but how do you really engage it? So we divide and conquer amongst us. We have five people in the, in the group that really focus on it and are extensively uh, involved in the, the hopping industry, uh, working with groups, uh, working with our brokers and also working with the groups like the hop quality group in various uh, uh, capacities and such. But in those environments, we, we come to uh, have these discussions with growers and breeders. And, you know, when it's in the field, we learn about it there. And it's, it's all part of this validation process. It starts in, in the field and then it works to the, to the, the kiln and then the, uh, the conditioning pile and then in the, um, in the cut downstream. And it, that, that takes up to, you know, two to three years sometimes before uh, we, you know, in talking with the, uh, the breeder and the, uh, and the different vendors, how they, like what they need next. At that point, we, we look at, we have various levels and size of different brewing from three barrel on up to 15 barrel that we can evaluate a hop. But we'll, you know, look at the hop, discuss the, um, you know, look at the, the analytics too. It gives us a good guide, but eventually we do, we want to brew with it. And when we do brew with it, we make sure we have and we communicate the entire uh, brewing process. We try to obtain all the controls, so all the methodology that we can possibly have, and we communicate it back. And then uh, sensory, tons of sensory. Eventually, uh, we we want to see the repeatability. So just one box, one one crop. That's usually not enough. That's I think uh, that's something shared by by most people involved in this process. But the data yeah. is very key. We dig into the GCMS, we dig into the analytics, we look at the fermentation effects and then supply that back and hopefully eventually get downstream into something that we can incorporate into a dry hop at all. So. I'd say you've touched on a very pertinent point for us, um, that, that validation is a key word, especially with, with new hop varieties, but also um, consistency and you know, from the farm perspective, you know, we talk about consistent agronomic expectations, consistent yields, consistent performance in beer. And, and this uh, feedback loop, uh, as you describe it, Tim, you know, between year on year sensory, you know, meshing that in with our understanding of how the season has gone, for instance, um, helping us. I think we're 
I think we're very mutually aligned between grower and uh, and brewer in a in a mutually beneficial outcome at that point because consistency is important for both of us. I think yeah, can, we've got to treat the plants consistently on a farm, consistent growing program, consistent harvest programs, processing. Yeah, all of that helps. Set ourselves yeah, up for we, a consistent that's right. We've got to give the that's right. Yeah. yeah. So Tim. Are you happy to are you happy to tell me uh, just just off the top of your head, uh, Hop? You would you think that you you and your group understand really well? Well, the uh, we've we've come to know Centennial very well over time because we've uh, we've evaluated it on on a high level and on a very thorough, exhaustive level for so long. Interestingly enough, we've in some ways fallen a little bit out of love with it, mainly because we just know, we, we almost know too much about it in many ways. But through our analytics and through various brewing trials, we, we came to understand the, the effects in, in terms of the field, the effects in the kiln, the processing, and in the brewing. Uh, we identified um, the, the negatives, and where and where they were really being maximized, and we also evaluated the positives and how to actually get those consistent, um, especially in terms of uh, communicating exactly what we want and what we've seen has worked with our brokers and growers. I guess um, the advantage to being over in the states is that you can have your five hop specialists out in the field at harvest time and those feedback loops are much shorter uh we we you know tim you've been on farm with us uh two three times now um mm -hmm. you know our feedback loops are a little bit longer but uh i certainly i certainly know that that we have always benefited from the from the deep technical understanding and um and challenges that that you've fed back to us on um you know, on uh, performance or, or uh, you know, a deep dive into why we make decisions that we make. Um, we've just got a question from uh, the audience. Uh, Will, one of our local brewers here, uh, he's just wondering um, whether across your different sites, hop trialling recipes are consistent between the breweries or if you have side-by-side uh, -side sort of nuances. Oh, yeah, plenty of nuances. <laughs> we have, we... we there is still some art in the the process that we take to incorporate and hops into everything. I think the the artist still uh, is guided by the science in at every single facility. Plus the taste. Everybody, you have to admit that we maybe we are making a product for a consumer, but the individual's taste will most certainly express itself in the beer. So we do have. I, I do look for the same data every single time. I say, please get this data back and, and the format that I asked for it back. But in terms of how, like, how they're actually coming to that decision of what hot blend they're going to come, uh, come up with, what direction they're going to go in terms of profile, it's, it's very much to the individual brewer. And then each facility, um, each brand has multiple uh, brewers and people, and we're actually trying to expand it. We want more people to be engaging the hops as much as we can. I mean, it's time. People's time is a big resource, but uh, it it is a certain, most certain. Every it's even getting more artistic in some ways, as just as fast as it's getting more scientific. So, hope that answers that. 
<laughs> a bit each way that we'll call that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but it's fair and reasonable across uh, across those sites and and with such a diversity of uh, you know engineering and equipment plus plus uh, good thinkers in the business. Yeah, you've got to harness that that sort of diversity. Yeah. Sorry, if I can. Mm. There's a kind of I know every brewery is set up differently, so there's different demands on the on the hop in that in the beer from that brewery. So I think the consistency is in the experimental approach in that you're either setting up an experiment to prove or to amplify the hop to show its good side, or you're setting up an experiment to break it mm -hmm. in a particular system. And, you know, consistency of data format is really, really important. So if you've got that consistency of concept, consistency of reporting, and you can have variability in the different trial mm -hmm. systems and still get really meaningful yeah, information. still got enough context to be meaningful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Tim, just uh, just touch on for us what your uh, key analytical equipment is in in driving this important data generation. The uh, the batch to batch analytics that we do use are we look at extract, we do a densitometer, we use an alkalizer, of course, for for the alcohol. We use uh, photometric analysis for. Uh, some basic uh, fermentation, you know, BDKs and acetaldehyde. Acetaldehyde is also a key indicator of yeast stress for us. And we use that as a way. And it, it does not jibe with hop flavor, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, ultimately, the, uh, the GCMS with some solid phase micro extraction, we've been getting to know that machine over the last couple of years. We use it to get fingerprints of hops. So... Uh, we're not looking because it's not, we don't have a target amount of anything, but the entire spectrum of what that hop delivers on the, uh, the chromatograph, it is uh, the chromograph, whatever the term is, <laughs> is we, we overlay it year to year to year. And we, we start getting an idea of what is, what varies and also how certain hops, uh, uh, you know, what they have and what others lack. So we, we've been formulating, uh, recipes by filling in the blanks and such too. Yep. So I mean, does that resonate with you, the way overlaying year on year, uh, whether it's um, GCMS, um, SPMA technology or, or potentially your 2D GC, is the overlay and the differences? Yeah. Does that resonate so, with you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the, yeah, it definitely does. It's important for us. You know, we had that conversation around consistency, so we can use these fingerprints to look at consistency between sites or between seasons. Um, the other element that I think is going to come is metabolite data sets are relatively new. It's not that long that we've been dealing with these really big, really complex data sets. And that, that type of data has some particular characteristics. Um, and there's going to be a lot of power come when someone actually works out how to put these things together and visualize it properly. So it sounds like Tim's doing a grand job overlaying chromatograms year on year. That's a, that's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily easy to interpret, but if someone can come up with a way to sort of simplify it and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, a bit of code, um, some smart stats to really show you what's what's changing and, and, and break that down. That's right. Um, and it might, there might still be some sort of heuristic in the middle, which is like when, when we see this difference year on year, we know the centennial profile yep. is going toward more to the floral than the citrus. Yeah, yeah. There might still be some, uh, <laughs> some yeah, use of your brain required. But that's right. Mm, yeah. Yeah, you'll, at least you'll have the lead indicators. Mm. From a data-driven perspective, 
to be able to maybe forecast how hops going to perform. Definitely. So, Tim, you've been uh, you've been in the game now for a while. Um, <laughs> uh, has your approach um, to managing hops and and seeking hop impact in beer changed over your journey? The it was only five or six years ago when we started formulating hop bills with up to five or six different varieties, but that was born out of the, uh, you know, trying to create a sustainable supply chain because we didn't want to be really linked to just one variety. Say if that variety had a down year, we were linked to that down aspect. So we created these um, supportive groups of, of hops in order to sustain it. But now, now it's all about innovation. And we are constantly being impressed as brewers to come up with new beers. And brands don't last nearly as long as they did. Uh, the ability to establish a brand is, is almost gone in some ways. There are some established brands that's, that are uh, persevering and such. And that's the perfect word, persevering and, and the like. But... Now we are, we are taking a hop arsenal approach, uh, trying to have a, as diverse a quiver as possible. As we've gotten into different hops, we've, uh, and as everybody knows in the last 10 years, especially, uh, and it's been in 30 years in the making, but the last 10 years, especially, the diversification of what a hop can really bring to the table through the accelerated hop breeding, still um, methodical, but, I mean, Simon could probably tell you that the pressures on, on hop breeding are more than ever before. And what has emerged out of that is, is incredible. And to fully take advantage of that on our end, we are trying to uh, just look at, okay, well, if we have 40 different varieties, that's a, that's a lot, but it's actually pretty close for seven different breweries. Uh, out of this, we can always create a unique IPA or a unique pale ale or a unique pilsner. And you know, it does mean that we're not gonna, when we wanna focus on the one variety, that it's gonna take some manipulation of our positions with our brokers and vendors, but there's always a way if we're able to have this, this palette of, of hop flavor in order to construct uh, beer flavor. So you've got, you've basically got, uh, you know, I, I kind of feel like I'm picking up two themes there. The hop arsenal allows you to innovate and um, not simplify, but at least you know the supply chain and your innovation pipeline are matched and you can, like you say, you can um, take whatever marketing is feeding in or whatever uh, creative license the brewers have got and you can, you, can, you can use those 40 plus varieties to come up with something unique. But I'm also picking up that um, with a hop arsenal approach, you're also, for those brands that are persevering, um, perhaps you have some recipe flex in them so that you can year on year still adjust if you've overlaid your GCMS data and you're, you're seeing your centennials uh, up, maybe, maybe there's um, in this arsenal approach, you've got that flexibility to, to just shift the hop grists and to make sure that that uh, complements the the best outcome for maximising hop flavour in those beers. Have I have I gone too far with that sort of second theme there? No, that's um, that that is very much uh, an approach we've used. Uh, for example, Dale's Pale Ale has swapped around hops 
three times in the last six years. We still focus on a target profile, but we're not married to a variety of these. We're married to a profile. And I think you can obtain that profile through um, some kind of, uh, you know, rearrangement occasionally, as long as you understand the hop and as long as you engage the hop. No, I, I think that's a fantastic approach. And certainly, um, you know, in my own personal experience, I've, I've had beers that have been dead in the water because I've been too staunch to uh, flex the hop bill in them. So when, uh, you know, when, uh, you know, the European crops, you know, seven and eight, for instance, were doing it tough, uh, my beer was doing it tough, you know, because I was too pig-headed to flex. So <laughs> I really, uh, again, I appreciate those comments. Guys, we're, we're going to wrap up. Tim, thank you so much for your contribution. Um, it's been a really enlightening chat. I've certainly learned a lot. Simon, yeah. again, thanks for making yourself available at a very busy time of the year. Uh, Tim, we uh, look forward to welcoming you back on the HPA farms um, as soon as we can uh, yeah. make that happen. I can't wait to get back down. So it's, it's one of the many trips I just can't wait to get out of Colorado for. So, <laughs> yeah, until then, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. You can download a full transcript of this conversation with links to other information in the show notes to this episode. Brewery Pro content is presented by Brews News and is designed for the brewing industry professional. If you have any suggestions for topics that we can cover, email us at cheers at brewsnews.com.au. Thank you for listening. <laughs>